This is the Future of Cybercrime podcast, a new show dedicated to helping security practitioners on the front lines of defending their organization from the cybercrime underground. I'm your host, Zyra Perzada, former Gartner analyst, information security and risk strategist, and storyteller. Now, let's jump right into today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Future of Cybercrime podcast with Kayla, where I speak with cybersecurity professionals, perhaps like yourselves, about the cybercrime underground. Today, I have with me Irina Nesterovsky, the Chief Research Officer at Kayla. Having served in one of the IDF's elite intelligence units, Irina has an extensive background in research and intelligence gathering. Her intellectual interests also have range. Irina completed her BSc in Neuroscience and Master's in Arts and Learning Disabilities at Tel Aviv University. Irina, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me and kudos on the great pronunciation of my name. (laughs) Oh, happily, happily. I do. I care about that so much. So one of the most fascinating things about our industry, I think, is that we have people practicing cybersecurity from all works of life. Your path is also wonderfully unique. How did you arrive at cybersecurity from neuroscience? So as you briefly mentioned, uh, really my basic background is not from cybersecurity, but I do come from intelligent background. So also, as you mentioned, serving one of IDF's elite units, engaging in various types of intelligence collection, interpretation, analysis, etc. So essentially, I took a dive from that, took some time off from intelligence to go and pursue and study something different. Uh, But then eventually I found myself looking for those intelligence-based jobs uh, because it sounded fun and interesting and something that I can do that is not necessarily related to what I studied, though that was fun as well. And so I uh, arrived at Kela. It was already eight years ago, which is unbelievable. And I started as an analyst, and the thought was essentially that intelligence collection and intelligence analysis is inherent in my um, in my character and the type of the intelligence that I engage in is not really doesn't really matter so I studied what I had to in order to get into the understanding of what is cyber threat intelligence but eventually the questions that we ask ourselves in the day-to-day job are similar to any other kind of intelligence it's the w questions it's who did what where why etc and use the relevant tools to cyber threat intelligence, to cybercrime intelligence collection analysis to get arrive at those answers. So obviously I studied what I had to, some sort of on-the-job training, if, if you'll call it that. Uh, but yes, yeah, so this is how I arrived from not having the re- relevant background to now leading a team of research here in Cala. Mm, okay. Well, you do have a relevant background as much as anyone. Uh, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So your work in intelligence throughout the course of your life, I assume, has been really, really enriching and not only enriching, but also has been used in different ways. I bet even in your bachelor's of science, your master's of arts, you were still working in intelligence and research 
in a different form. So definitely probably carried over with you. What makes a good intelligence officer or analyst? What are some of the characteristics, some of the traits? So I think curiosity is one. Another thing is not accepting anything at face value. It's constantly uh, questioning, and that can be difficult in the day-to-day life. But in the professional world, it's really important to understand what you're looking for, where did this information come from, uh, to question everything you see, to make sure you arrive at the first test uh, source of information or intelligence as you see it, and be thorough enough and curious enough to, again, not uh, receive it at face value, but actually be able to analyze the information by yourself, understand what's happening. Of course, you can use uh, peers' uh, help uh, at that, but really to make sure you are understanding what you're looking at and the curiosity that I mentioned is essentially to be able to dig deep, sometimes too deep, sometimes it's uh, chasing a rabbit down a rabbit hole, but uh, we see it as kind of the, the basic thing you have to, you have, to have uh, as a good intelligence uh, operator, analyst, in order to get at the conclusions eventually that you need. Because you can learn the technical terms, you can learn how to uh, operate tools, you can learn how to apply different types of uh, writing, for example. But to have to look at the intelligence piece and to understand what you're looking at and make sure you arrive at the uh, right conclusion, or at least you have an assessment that you are sure that you've done everything you need to do. Those are the major, the major points and kind of the the most important things as I see them. I like that you pointed out curiosity. Sometimes curiosity does bring us down those rabbit holes, though. And in this yeah. world, it, and so you're familiar. You're, it, it feels like you're familiar with that one too many times. As a chief research officer at Kayla. How do you prioritize your agenda and lead researchers towards truth while also fighting time? So obviously we need to understand what's happening in the world. Um, As much as I would like to have everyone go down their own rabbit holes, we need to understand first and prioritize based on existing trends, on existing uh, threats that are out there. So for example, We know, and everyone knows, I guess, for the last couple of years or even more now, um, uh, ransomware attacks have, you know, terrified and have terrorized organizations and governments around the world. So obviously one of my highest priorities is being on top of things related to this ransomware trend, knowing that we have to trace those cyber criminals to whatever they go. So not a rabbit hole will be to make sure that we are researching those threat actors, we're seeing where they're going with you, where they're claiming their next attacks or previous attacks. And that would be kind of one prioritization, knowing what already happens. The other thing would be to allow analysts, allow researchers to actually try and cast a wider net to see maybe something, some trend is overlooked. Maybe there is something interesting happening that no one else has covered. And that if we understand that this can be an interesting enough piece of research, uh, interesting in terms of this could bring value to understanding the next upcoming cyber threat. This can be leveraged to help our clients in preventing the next cyber attack on their organizations. That would be also my prioritization. And I would, I guess the third or 
we don't have to number it, but um, also to try and stay away from uh, maybe items that are just hype based. So some items that someone is suddenly propagating uh, a specific information or intelligence on a specific new cyber crime activity or so not necessarily stay away from that, but actually try and provide context and try to provide uh, an understanding that this threat, for example, is less important than it seems to be because of all of the propagation, all that media attention. So, and one example for that would be that a couple of weeks ago, I guess this was also covered in various news cycles, uh, a Russia-oriented hacktivist group named Killnet claimed that they're going to attack financial institutions throughout Europe and uh, the United States. So obviously that created a huge buzz because everyone or cybersecurity professionals are following this group. And obviously we understood that we have to track that, but also we try to, to make sense of the claims this group has made. And we saw that they claimed or someone who uh, published this threat, uh, which was actually a Russian uh, news media outlet, not the actors themselves, said that a former ransomware called Revel is also getting in on the action. But Killnet are in the hacktivist and DDoS, so uh, denial of service attacks, Revel were engaged in ransomware. So what's the relation between those two? So while we understand the actually the, the need of both our clients and companies around the world and cybersecurity professionals is to understand, you know, to, to separate the, the real from the non-real, we still felt like there was a lot of propagation. There was a lot of hype and buzz surrounding that. And we saw that those criminals actually used that. They were using their messaging uh, group just to, you know, laugh about this whole situation and make jokes and not really, well, it's good, right? But not really standing up to their claims. So, yeah, so we have to prioritize based on existing threats, but also know how to present or know how to separate the important from the non-important, even when everyone else are talking about it. Everything that you're saying resonates so well with a episode we had on this podcast earlier on with Matthew Schwartz, who is a cyber journalist. And he said that one of the difficult things in investigations and research is sifting through the truth. Sometimes blatant claims are made and they're only ever made to take researchers and intelligence analysts off the right path. So these decoys and all of these traps, I bet they're even more challenging for organizations who have security researchers on hand and have to decide what is their most immediate threat. And they only have so many, whereas Kayla would have more and a lot more experience behind it. So I'm wondering... How feasible is it for an everyday security organization to do what you do at Kela? Sure. So at Kela, as a CTI and specifically cybercrime oriented company, what we're looking to understand is what cyber criminals do, how they act, who they want to attack, who they already attacked, all of that to provide, on the one hand, uh, relevant intelligence to our clients who are coming from different realms of the cybersecurity world. Uh, those can be CTI professionals, those can be fraud, fraud analysts, and there is enough for everyone to 
protect the organization, protect their clients. So we are researching and also providing a platform that is uh, alerting those clients on potential threats against them, focused on them. And on the other hand, we are conducting research for the clients uh, based on request, request needs or on our own in order to, as I mentioned before, uh, widen or cast our wide net on current trends, current threats in cybersecurity and cyber threat intelligence. So for that, we have both automated tools that we built here in-house to collect all the information and intelligence from various cybercrime underground sources so that my analyst, and I'm saying my analyst, but uh, the team that uh, that is working hard uh, in the Cyber Intelligence Center here at Kela, so they don't have to spend or waste time essentially collecting manually this intelligence so they can have all the intelligence at their fingertips. And uh, based on those automated tools collections and of course other uh, other tools that we use, we conduct various types of research. We provide context to our, to our clients on the threats that pertain to them because sometimes or most of the times information without the context is just information, it's not intelligence. So if I would see or detect a cyber criminal posting publishing some information, sometimes it will lack any kind of context aside from the one name that we can gather or aside from the one contextualized intelligence that we already have here at Kela. Because we have both the tools, the automated tools, we have a big research team that is working daily and is daily engaging with intelligence information and knows where threat actors are going, what are they doing, what they're discussing. We have that broader view and broader uh, intelligence understanding of potential threats. Just as I mentioned earlier, we are able to question the legitimacy of the claims that Killnet will go ahead and attack all of financial institutions. Sure, they can attempt perhaps uh, denial of service attacks, but maybe it will not hurt the institutions as much. And this is something that we know because we know who Rival is, we know who Killnet are, we know how braggy they are. So in terms of whether it's feasible or not, it can be done but it will be a lot of manual work. It will be a lot of man hours. And so our clients like, and we like to think that uh, they view us as an extension of their intelligence teams, an extension of their incident response teams, because if they have a question, if they're dealing with a security incident, or if they're simply reading Twitter and seeing someone you know, just posting the screenshot from Kilnet's Telegram channel, they want to understand what's happening there and they want it well, either, either now or they want just to have the view of intelligence experts, which we are. And uh, essentially, we are uh, working together with them to provide them this ease of mind uh, to receive as much context and as much intelligence as, po- as possible. So only in the case that a company has their own big CTI team who can uh, direct attention and those same things that we are looking at each day, each day Unless that's the case, it will be very hard for a normal size organization or even sometimes big because CTI teams are dealing with a lot of incoming information intelligence from different tools. And sometimes they just get lost in the either, even if it's all true positive, it's a lot of information to process. And sometimes they just need someone to tell them what's the bottom line to assess a specific threat. And this is what we're here for. Mm. They wouldn't be able to see the forest through the trees. Even if they did have a large CTI team, it feels like to me because it will take some time. Yes. Yeah. Being so fixated on 
probably discrepancies inside of the uh, security organization itself based on what priorities people have. So CISO might say, I want you to look into this and do this and do that. Then you might have other stakeholders who might have other interests. So it's battling many fronts inside of an organization, which makes which makes okay. you a resource. Yeah. Have you noted that? Have you seen that before? Have you been with security organizations who do have uh, threat intelligence researchers and where your collaboration has been fruitful? Yes, definitely. So uh, many times our clients will have other vendors at hand, and this definitely helps them to have several types of visibility. Sometimes we will receive question or request for uh, investigation from a client who has received some previous other intelligence, they would like to corroborate it, or they would like further, intel further information. And sometimes this will actually help us understand that Okay, something is happening that might still not made it into the sources that we cover, or we should get a different look at what we saw and thought that was A and it's actually B. So definitely collaborating, working with clients, receiving some kind of sometimes even small bits of information that is coming from maybe a different vendor or from the client's own research, client's own assessment, uh, many times helps us either do the job better or shed a different light on something. So yes, definitely. I hope so. I assumed so as well. So I'm glad it's it's not a basis assumption. I want to take a slight turn here. I like what you said about intelligence. Intelligence without context is not intelligence. You need information and context to make intelligence. That was a brilliant way to put it. Because oftentimes all we ever get our data points that are not yet connected. And it takes a lot of time. Time is the one thing we're fighting to make intelligence worthwhile. For your team, with all of the customers you serve, with all of their varying interests, how do you build specific threat intelligence for them? So essentially we have clients from different verticals, different sectors. And when I say clients, it really is a team within a big organization. I guess this works for all of those uh, companies serving clients out there. So we can have a client originally interested in our services, uh, as I mentioned earlier, a fraud team. A fraud team would be interested in protecting clients' assets. They would be interested, of course, understanding if there is uh, a huge fraud-related vulnerability in how they act, uh, if threat actors are aware of that. They would be interested in understanding understanding what threat actors are doing to attack their clients, saving money on, for example, if we're talking about a bank, saving money from different fraudulent schemes uh, or just saving clients money because that eventually uh, what matters. So for them, we will build and we will work together to focus on those areas of following and monitoring different sources where mainly, for example, people who who make fake credit cards, who trade in stolen checks, and we will make sure that their the intelligence they get is focused on those interests. For others, if we're talking about, for example, a CTI team who are interested in protecting the organization, are interested in understanding the threat landscape from which they have to essentially to protect their companies, course, we will first aim to pr protect themselves by showing the attack landscape, attack, sorry, attack surface 
of their company, what already was compromised as in regards to your company and, for example, information already uh, shared or sold in various cybercrime sources. And we will work together to provide them as much information as needed based on their scope of interest on emerging threats, emerging trends, provide them with understanding of what happens in similar sectors, for example, based on different things that we see. And of course, if a company or a team we're working with is interested, for example, in monitoring uh, not only attack surface, but uh, for example, information that has leaked from the company, we can also of course work with them and it's all based on a scope. And of course, one of the important things um, out there is um, third-party risk, everyone are talking about it, uh, how, how much of leaked information is actually coming, stemming from attacks on companies that are not actually you, but other companies. For that, of course, we also work together to provide uh, some sort of monitoring and awareness of whether your vendor was already attacked, those ransomware people we're talking about, um, the name and shame companies, we're able to provide a client or organization working with us with an understanding of how leaky, let's say, uh, their vendors already are, and should they take certain steps to prevent or to protect themselves from that incident. Oh, so you're even venturing into the third-party supplier risk uh, lens as well with your intelligence. Definitely. That's uh, incredible. This entire past week, we were pretty preoccupied with Lockbit and then a very high ransom put up as a result of a third-party supplier risk and breach. So that could be very helpful for companies to use. How do they mobilize your intelligence? So um, I think the most interesting item for them, because usually it's a visibility they gain already after something has happened, then, of course, the first priority is whether their own files are within, for example, the files which were uploaded to those attackers' websites as a show-off, as a proof of information, or maybe even after the proof stage where all of the information is released, then understanding are they under risk from their own information being leaked from there. And this is kind of the, the basic item. The second one will be, of okay, course, they're working with a company that this, this this is something that happened to it. They can reach out perhaps to the organization themselves, and this is definitely what we prefer. They do as uh, they do as well is to maybe demand explanation, demand information on exactly what has happened, and so that they can make a decision, an informed decision on should they continue the business together. Of course, what's important to say is that. While there's always a reason for for a data breach, for a ransomware attack, many times it's a human factor because someone has to click some file or someone has to, uh, you know, um, uh, lose lose their credentials or have their credentials leaked in order for for an uh, for an attack to start. So it all uh, most of it comes down to the human factor. The organizations themselves are not necessarily at fault for that happening, but sometimes. People and organizations really do not patch vulnerabilities, really use outdated software, really have lack of understanding of security protocols. So definitely if such thing happens to a vendor of of a client we're working with, definitely we would suggest to consider understanding from the company what has happened or trying to understand perhaps 
through the use of Kala? What is the information that the attackers have released in terms of what they explo exploited perhaps, or, or what information exists about this information being exploited to understand what to do next? So a good example would be uh, the recent plop claimed uh, attacks, the Movit uh, vulnerability that was exposed. So a file transfer software that was used by multiple organizations across the world. Many of those are financial institutions to upload files to a shared environment. Actors from associated with the CLOP group, which usually used to attack with ransomware, have exploited the vulnerability, found the vulnerability in this software, and as a result, have extracted multiple gigabytes, terabytes already, uh, if, we if we combine the claimed numbers. And this doesn't mean necessarily that the companies themselves are at fault. They use the software, the software had a vulnerability, but sometimes it, it really is someone deciding that they don't use, need to, again, update software. They can use the oldest versions that already have vulnerabilities. So uh, that's, that's quite important to understand. Before we continue on to the remainder of our episode, I would like to take a brief moment to speak about our sponsor, Kayla. Kayla delivers 100% real, actionable, timely, and contextual intelligence about cyber threats and threat actors. With Kayla's home-brewed threat and compromise intelligence, your organization is empowered to identify, prioritize, and effectively mitigate digital security risks. I personally think it's a wonderful product, though you'll only know if you try it for yourself. Kayla offers an extended free trial of its cyber threat intelligence platform on their website, kaylacyber.com. That is K-E-L-A-C-Y-B-E-R.com. Visit kaylacyber.com to unlock the free trial today. Initiate proactive cyber defense and stay ahead of your threats. Now, let's get back to our episode. With all of the intelligence that you have at Kalem, how do your teams work through conflicting intelligence, their intelligence to get to the truth for customers? How can they trust the truth and the validity of your threat intelligence in comparison to all of their other tools that might be providing it? Um, so I would like to use an example that we we had a couple of years ago uh, with uh, with a client's request to do exactly that, provides with additional intelligence or um, confirm or dispute something that they received from from a different uh, from a different vendor, and what happened is that um, there was information that this client received about a certain vulnerability being exploited already by Chinese and Russian-speaking actors. And they actually provided, I think it was some sort of screenshot. And when we usually look at this information, we want, as I mentioned previously, to get to the first source of this information. So the fact that I got the screenshot, I have to find it. This is, I don't know if it's my personal thing, but I guess not. This is something that you should do, you should find where this was posted in order to confirm or deny it. And sometimes, unfortunately, in the cybersecurity world, there are vendors, providers who actually will provide false information or provide fake 
fake proof. So when we were trying to locate this first source of truth, so this first uh, information, we understood that it's not really clear that this is really coming from a Russian-speaking source. So this screenshot is not coming from anything we're familiar with. And uh, the screenshot included a picture of code, so code being written, and the comments that usually accompany code in, for example, GitHub or just in any kind of uh, uh, code writing software, you would add comments so that anyone using the code after you will understand what this part of code means. And so we saw that the comments were in Russian, which is first not very common. So even Russian speaking developers would code in, of course, in English, but also their comments would be many times in English. And for the same thing, the words in Russian were different. So the same term that should appear there, there were different Russian words. And so what we what we did, we actually said that, okay, this is the code. It might appear in GitHub. So let's take something in English from this code. So the code itself and look it up on GitHub. And what we uncovered was really a code on GitHub for this vulnerability, a POC, so a proof of concept. So not a 100% working code, but something that was not obfuscated, but kind of censored. And the comments were in English. So if you took that code and you put it through Google Translate, you would receive the text that we received from a client as a proof for an existing POC exploited by cyber criminals. This is like a very good example of actually trying to find the source and trying to corroborate it. Uh, and as you said, conflicting evidence, is it trans trustworthy? So my take on this is, okay, this screenshot that somebody gave you, it's not fake because someone, you know, someone took the screenshot, but the information, the context of the information is incorrect. This is not cyber criminals sharing this tool. This is someone who took a code of GitHub and Google translated it to make it look like Russian speaking cyber criminals have used it. Uh, and this is one. Uh, and this is kind of a great example of how really going down to the roots of the information can help you. But in many other cases, it's not as straightforward. So again, Kilnet saying they will attack. We don't know if that will happen. What we can suggest, and as I already mentioned, we can analyze where this is coming from. So one interesting thing was really to see that, as I mentioned, the claim of the attack, and this is how this was propagated, it was said that uh, Killnet and Revel have said they will attack. So how it actually happened is that probably somebody from those groups, well, from Killnet, uh, provided it. But essentially, the first video was posted by this Russian news media outlet on their Telegram group. So where they said that those actors will attack. So it's not like somebody picked up on something that Kilnet said in their channel. It's someone posted this video with the claims that this will happen and the Kilnet guys later forwarded it in their groups. So perhaps they wanted to gain some uh, credibility because, well, a news media outlet has published this. So this, you know, this, you will be more afraid of that as opposed to just us posting it in Telegram channel. But again, we don't know if this will happen, but this makes us think as analysts who know that this is weird, that we know that uh, Russian uh, propaganda is really hard at work during, this, um, during the war with Ukraine, it's still ongoing. Uh, we know that those are red flags 
So we know that this is weird. And then we try to understand, okay, let's see who else posted this. And so if you use uh, different uh, open source tools to, to cover Telegram uh, reposting of information, you could see that different uh, accounts not related to the war, like you could have, I don't know, a housewife, housewife's uh, channel somewhere in Russia suddenly posting this, this message that Kilnet, uh, groups of Kilnet and Rebel will attack. Why should you post this information? Why this post should appear in in a web feed of, I don't know, also another city in Russia or in Ukraine where they have previously never discussed the word. So you understand that this is, while we're not closely researching Russian propaganda, if you know this, that this happens, you understand that something larger is at work here. So this is what helps us understand the credibility and what might happen or might not, something we will not know. We'll tell to our clients, we'll tell to our, our readers that we are, you know, our confidence level is medium. Our confidence level is low because this is, for example, an actor we have never seen before, but it is possible that a newcomer will attack. It is possible that someone that is, for example, claiming to have access to a huge organization, it is possible this is, for example, a front of a nation state group that is actually doing this will actually sell it. It is possible that someone has just changed their username and is now, you know, starting afresh, but they actually have the ability to do this attack, but we just don't know because we are not able sometimes to trace that. So it's very different type of work each time. Sometimes it is hard to understand, uh, you know, the conflicting evidence and try to uh, understand, but there are the basic tools to understand what's true and what not. You can look at it as, for example, timeline is already mentioned. So who posted it first? And based on that, how can you understand if it's real or not? Was it uh, published before? For example, if we see someone claiming again for an attack or a breach of a database, and we will use our tools, for example, for historical archive search, and we understand that this is just someone reselling the same database from a year before, it's already public and it's not a real, it's not a new attack. And, but this has already been propagated by the news, for example. So it will be easy for us in this case. Okay, we actually see this information already published. So it might be used again for malicious purposes, but it's not a new attack. It's the threat level can be lowered a bit. So it really, it really depends on the type of information or initial intelligence we receive. What I love most about everything that you said is that you understand, you and your team, understand the nuances in human behavior, in human language, in human action, whether that be a, a single human or a collective group. That is an intrinsic trait, just really understanding the human behind everything. So that's something I don't think tools can replicate. <laughs> I don't, And I don't think people without the extensive intelligence background you and your team have can do. The two examples that you provided piqued my interest in understanding what's on your research agenda now. What's taking up time at Kayla right now? I, I really would love to hear about that. Sure. So as I mentioned, we're all the time are balancing between staying on top of things we already know and kind of venturing out to see what's what else is out there. So aside from being able to provide sort of an outlook or, or a threat landscape of what is happening 
now and what directly affects companies. I think that it's important also to understand and to deepen our understanding of the cybercrime underground economy. For example, one of the things um, one of the teams is working on right now is actually understanding the economy of groups such as Kilnan. They are performing those denial of service attacks, but if they're doing it on a daily basis or even weekly basis, who pays the money? How do they get paid? Because many times cybercrime is a full-time job and uh, performing denial of service attack, you need tools, you need money, you need, even for those actions themselves, I'm not, and I'm not even talking about you know, percent of gain or something like that. So currently, this is one of the things the team is working on, and it's really uncovering and focusing not on the victim claims that this group has made, so claiming or uh, um, alleging or threatening to attack, for example, organization in Poland, because Poland is supportive of Ukraine. It is looking at their other posts, or what they have published, what they have gathered money for, even uh, like crowdfunded uh, and and interesting things like that, to get an understanding of okay, this is not some hooded figure in you know in front of a computer. It's just a business as any anything. And if this can be used later to help, even for example, law enforcement to kind of get a better understanding of how those groups operate and which resources they use to perhaps go ahead and stop them at some point that that will be that will be great uh, but obviously the biggest trend that we're following uh, still and right now is the whole item of initial access to organizations and network access that could uh, well the biggest threat is those can result in ransomware attacks specifically just like kind of an introduction so there are cyber criminals, threat actors engaged in selling initial access to networks of companies. Essentially, really simply what it means is that in some way they would gain access to credentials of an employee at a specific organization to access their remote connection software to the organization, to the company. Of course, sometimes that is not enough. Companies would usually utilize another, uh, another piece of authentication, but sometimes it is enough to gain access to just one little piece of software connecting to a network of a company and start a further compromise from there. And we have been tracking those subcontrols for the past three, four years. Uh, they have been active even before, but nowadays it's really in the amount of hundreds each week or each two weeks, for example, people who are selling that. Why are they selling that? Because they got the credentials, but maybe they're not sure what to do with it next. They don't have the tooling to conduct further attacks, but they know that they can gain money from selling it to someone else. And we have identified several potential attacks where a company was attacked with ransomware. It was either claimed by this ransomware gang or the company admitted it over public um, announcement. And we actually traced back of sorts. So we saw an indication that access or network access to the same company was sold, for example, a month prior to that on one of the cyber criminal forums. This is something that is constantly evolving because uh, criminals are finding new software to abuse. They're finding new vulnerabilities in those software, new ways to enter organizations. Uh, so we have to follow that. We have to understand what's happening in order to also provide our clients with understanding of what they should be aware of, what they should protect against. 
and so forth. And unfortunately, almost each day or almost each week, it depends, uh, new ransomware trains or ransomware gangs or just people operating some ransomware are up and are becoming up and coming on the cybercrime uh, threat landscape. So we will also identify those those incidents. So a new website claiming victims, a new Telegram channel saying that this is information from a company that was attacked. And many times here, it's also not necessarily conflicting information, but we have to be very careful with what we say about those attacks. So we use a very careful language as you claim to compromise because we don't really, unless we see a confirmation from the company that they were compromised, it can be tricky. So we are following that. We are following overall the cybercrime economy and um, and definitely all of those hacktivist group stemming from Russia-oriented activities because we understand that sometimes our clients can become targets because of those groups' actions and we really want to understand what they have prepared next, even if that's uh, not going to happen. For the technology that you mentioned that cyber threat actors are using, mm-hmm. are they are they home-baked or are they technology we know? So even in the cases of APT groups, and we actually got just now out uh, a great research on how nation state actors and APT groups, actually, they don't have to, to use sophisticated tools to initiate an attack. And we have seen the same Trojans, the same RAT tools used, identified as used in different nation state sponsored attacks, being freely sold or offered on cybercrime, in cybercrime sources. So this can be something as, I wouldn't say simple, but this is actually non-malicious in its core uh, cobalt strike tool, which is actually um, a legitimate tool created for red teaming for pen testing organizations for legitimate purposes is something that has been propagated and uh, jailbroken uh, in cybercrime communities and used in almost, almost every article I read about uh, a nation state attack or just a campaign, a wide campaign to attack companies, it many times will start with some sort of uh, couple strike implementation. So they can use that. They can use something of their own and they can just exploit vulnerabilities that were previously published, abusing the fact that not all companies patch. Sometimes it will cost a lot of money to use uh, you know, an updated version of something and they will just go ahead and test for exposed endpoints using this outdated or vulnerable software. And then they will just use code that they can also get from fellow cyber criminals. They don't have to write this abusing code on their own. So it really depends. So of course, there are those who write um, home homemade tools to do to perform specific actions, but many others can be just uh, freely bought off cybercrime sources. Okay, that that makes sense. I would love to see some research on the tools being used, not the ones we're familiar with, but rather the home-baked ones to understand the capacity of threat actors. On a side note, what should businesses know and prepare for in modern days? Do you have other recommendations for people listening in, for practitioners, enterprise defenders? Sure. So while those are the main ones and we know that uh, zero trust is this, you know, um, very popular um, 
term that is that is widely being used and also a recent couple of years exactly because of that, because you can't trust um, actually anything that connects to your network, to your organization. I'm not sure how many of the companies out there are already implementing that. And definitely the fact that many of us still work from home and the pandemic, who remembers it, but it was here. Uh, it started with people suddenly starting to work from home, suddenly connecting from different you know, unknown networks, uh, carrying their laptop home with them. And this actually created a bigger uh, attack surface for cybercriminals against organizations where you don't have uh, perhaps the previously working solutions at place to kind of to protect the entire organization because you could have this one person who used who didn't use their um, VPN to connect perhaps or or use some new connection and uh, cyber criminal could be uh, using that. So um, I think while this is uh, a really hip term right now and it's important to really because um, anything can can be compromised and we hear clients saying things like um, our clients or other you know, companies saying, well, we have multiple factor authentication in place. Um, it doesn't matter that an employee's credentials have leaked. But if someone really wants to target your employee, they will make sure to steal their multiple factor authentication, for example, a text code, or they will um, even, even not in the level of, of an SMS um, code, something that is web-based can also be compromised to get you know, to get that information. So businesses should, I guess, prepare for implementation of, uh, of, of zero trust and understand that cyber criminals are always evolving. Um, they want to get that money because eventually, again, it's a business. It's the way some people make money. It's immoral and it's weird, but this is how they make their money. You know, me and yourself are, you know, making our money no one way they're making their money this way and they will always try to find the thing that brings them money so staying ahead of the game in terms of either ahead or at least on the same level knowing what threat actors are currently looking into exploitation discussing specific uh zero days or even one days specific applications that you should uh you know be very careful when using uh being aware that Anything that uh, that is human-based can be compromised, and being aware of the fact that you really need to have all controls in place. So, all the trends we discussed of ransomware and network access—really, they can start with something really small. And it's really important to have uh, training for employees. It's really important uh, that all employees are aware of the even the smallest thing that can that this can get them compromised. Uh, because we're we're again we're talking about big things, but Things like business email compromise, which it's not overlooked. It's a huge problem for companies worldwide. But this can also start with just compromise of one person and other people at the end of that um, first uh, fraudulent email are not realizing they're actually talking to an imposter. So again, it's educating employees to be very, very cautious on everything they do. making them understand that their professional email and I'm emphasizing email because really this is where most I, I don't know if most but yeah a large portion of attacks start from phishing emails from uh, social engineering understanding that your work email your um, corporate email is not just 
a place where you can get any email. If you're getting a suspicious email, if you're not, you know, you should be aware of your surrounding and employees should be aware more of the fact that anyone can become a target, either opportunistic or targeted, and be very, very cautious of that. All brilliant advice. And I bet all of the best practices in security hygiene, if we were to collect all of it, it would fill up volumes. So it's wonderful to also have Kayla Threat Intelligence because with already your large repository of historical threat intelligence, and then all of the home-brewed, continuously new and innovative intelligence that your team is building, at least organizations will have a focused and filtered way to look at what practices matter most to them and where maybe their blind spots are or their risky spaces are in security behavior or even you know, missing tools, what have you. All along that, only intelligence can carry you there to good hygiene. So I'm glad that a service like yours exists. And then furthermore, the, the platform for Kayla Threat Intelligence. I think we're running out of time here, but before I even let you go, Irina, I'd love for everyone to know where to find you. Where can they keep up with your work and your team's work? Sure. So uh, we have a lovely website uh, at killacyber.com where you can find all of our recent research that uh, really encompasses our view of the cybercrime underground uh, news, uh, interesting thought pieces, uh, and multiple other things. You can follow us on Twitter, um, which I don't recall the, um, the handle right now, but also Kelly Intelligence or something, or you can just find myself uh, over there. And of course, LinkedIn, where we also post interesting items. So all of those can really give you a glimpse into what we're looking into, our thoughts on some, uh, some items that are emerging, uh, and so on. And of course, you can, when on our webpage, you can register for a free trial of our solution for organizations of course, um, if you're an analyst who wants to see what it's all about, you want uh, you hear about this first time of, of the fact that we have this capability, uh, two weeks free trial for exploring the cybercrime underground can get you just what you need. You can do so much with two weeks. So I really exactly. yeah. <laughs> all right, Irina, thank you so much for your time today. I absolutely appreciate it. You've given us a lot to work with, all security practitioners, from what they should watch out for, how they should protect their organizations, and then also shed a light on exactly how Kayla does what it does. And I've heard wonderful reviews across various different practitioners, not just enterprise defenders, but human defenders, about Kayla's product. So it's great to finally know how the research happens. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Zayra. It was a very enlightening podcast. Thank you. I'm glad. And I hope it is for everyone else. For everyone listening in, we publish bi-weekly. Always feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn, where we often are chatting with other listeners like yourselves. And also feel free to connect with Irina and myself on any questions you might have, comments, or say if you would also like to shed some light on topics we discussed on the podcast. Thank you again for joining in. And until next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cybercrime podcast brought to you by Kella. For the latest episodes, 
please visit ke-la.com or search Future of Cybercrime on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.